I'm Dick Ostrom, and you're listening to Vaccine Questions, brought to you by the Royal Irish Academy Life and Medical Sciences Committee in partnership with the Health Research Board. In each episode, I'll be chatting with experts from public health, immunology, virology, bioethics, statistics, and behavioral science. I'll be asking them to explain how science is helping us to tackle this virus and trying to understand vaccines and vaccination a bit better. This week, I spoke to Professor Philip Nolan. He chairs the Irish Epidemiological Modeling Advisory Group within NEFIT. And I wanted to find out from him what his team actually does and how they work towards controlling the pandemic. We've become used to hearing night after night a long list of numbers, including grim things such as people's death and number of people taken into hospital and such. These numbers are are confusing sometimes. They're certainly sad to see given the loss of life there. But it's also an important part of being able to track the pandemic if we can look at these numbers and study them and understand them. Philip, are these the same numbers that you and your team use when you run your computer models and make predictions about COVID-19? Dick, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you. And in one sense, yes. Um, What we aim to give the public a, a comprehensive but at the same time as simple as possible uh, understanding of the behavior of the disease so that's why we do present case numbers uh, the moving average of those case numbers hospitalizations and as you say sadly mortality is a signal uh, of the behavior of the disease so when we model the disease um Yes, uh, we, we take those numbers into account, but that's really only part of the picture. Behind what you'll be hearing each evening uh, is an incredible level of detail on the behavior of the disease. So through the contact management program run by the HSE, through the public health departments around the country, and very importantly, a, a, a core group of public health professionals in the Health Protection and Surveillance Centre they assemble a very large database of every test, every case. So behind the numbers you hear every evening, we'd have a database with detail on it. I mean, we're looking at 190,000 cases at the moment. We have 50 or 60 data points uh, behind each one. So so that kind of huge amount of data is one of the inputs into the models. And I think just another important point it's not just a question of data, there's, a, there's also the assumptions behind the model. So in, in paying tribute to that very large group of public health specialists and surveillance scientists, we also have to be very careful about the assumptions that we have in our models. What's the in- incubation period of the disease? What's the underlying reproduction number? And there are other teams, um, a team led by Simon Moore in, in UCD, uh, that, that pulled together the initial assumptions behind the models and then uh, the unit in the Health Information and Quality Authority, HICMA, led by Maureen Ryan, they do this systematic evidence analyses um, that, that we feed into our model. So it really is a team effort. There's a lot of work going on behind the scenes, obviously, listening to that. Um, I didn't realize it was parsed into groups that were looking in this way at things, and it's, it's interesting. Um, but it, this does tell us something really quite important. It's important 
the information that we hear each night, which has been reduced to a, t- a tiny fraction of the original bunch of numbers that were crunched for this, but the those few numbers that were given in the evening are very important because they're predicting if a surge is impacting as it is now, how well or how badly we're responding to things. So, so really, people should try to pay attention to this. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's 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 a, what we give at any given briefing is is a careful distillation of a huge array of data. And people will see that there are some things that we're focused on all the time. Uh, the five-day moving average of case numbers. Um, but there are other things that we're watching at different times. The age-specific incidents, if we're concerned about uh, ex- uh, exposure of those who are older and more vulnerable. Sometimes we're focused in on where are the outbreaks occurring, particularly when the disease is at relatively low levels. So the briefing that we give the public changes with time because we're trying to inform people what are the most important indicators of the disease right now. Mm -hmm. There are some that are always important, the the number of cases. Uh, And sadly, when we're watching the number of hospitalizations or the number of deaths, to a certain extent, we've left it too late at that point. That When you're looking at increases in hospitalization or increases in mortality, Mm -hmm. we're in the unfortunate position where we're no longer ahead of the virus. We're chasing the virus down and it's um, causing morbidity and mortality as we chase it down. Yeah. The numbers are delivered quite quickly. Um, I hear what you're saying about how you can pay attention to the part you're interested in or most important to you, like say, for example, hospitalizations or ICUs. Um, But is there a group of numbers that people can Generally, people can look at and say, oh, I I can see what he's talking about, or I can see where we're going with this. Is there like one or two or three, or really, do you have to pay attention to them all? Yeah, I think think if we can put it this way, the the early warning indicators, the things that tell you what's happening and where the disease is going is, for instance, the five-day moving average of case numbers or seven-day moving average. So Mm -hmm. so to smooth out the day-to-day variation and look at the trend over time. The positivity rate is very important. A low positivity rate tells us that we're detecting most of the disease. So when you're looking at positivity rates of 15 or 20 percent, you're concerned that you're missing cases um, if if your detection rate is so high amongst the people that you're testing. Um, The the incidence by age is very important. So So not just to look at the raw case numbers, but how is it spread across age cohorts in the population? And then, of course, the growth rate and reproduction numbers, that that tells us where the disease is going. So watching for hopefully decline over time or if we've got low disease levels, very little change over time. So very little growth um, and a reproduction number, ideally less than one. And then, as I say, those indicators of severity, hospitalization and mortality or so on. We're watching those at times when we're in difficulty with the disease, trying to bring it back under control, trying to limit the impact of widespread community transmission yeah you know it's, it struck me we're talking about models but you know tell us what a model is in this context yeah i mean it's it, the viral transmission in a population follows some relatively simple mathematical laws of growth um it's somewhat like compound interest uh uh the, the virus grows exponentially by each person who gets it infecting more than one other person and that accumulating mm-hmm. very rapidly over time. And those things are actually quite difficult to think about. We find it very difficult in, in psychologically 
to accommodate the reality of the concept of, of exponential growth. So models are a, a mathematical abstraction of the disease in one sense, tra- take that behavior of transmission from individual to individual, abstract it mathematically, and try and predict future scenarios based on that. And you can have very simple models, which are take the whole population and you model it as a set of differential equations, simply as people move from being susceptible to the disease through being exposed to the virus and catching it through becoming infectious for a period of time and then being recovered. And each of those transitions uh, can be modeled with a differential equation, bundle them together and you, you can essentially program the model uh, to give you what might happen under different circumstances. Uh, so we have that, we, we have a model like that then which we've broken down into age cohorts because this virus in particular behaves differently as, as we grow older. Yeah, in a sense, people want to know what how they're faring, how their their age category is faring. Yeah, and, and, and we, want, we want to predict that too. And there's a different category of model then, which is an agent-based model. And you, you can imagine rather than, than kind of describing the population mathematically, this is where you program a computer with simulated people, millions of them, and mm-hmm. have them interact. Um, and and you, you model the spread of the virus in that more concrete way. The problem with those models, of course, is they're very heavily dependent on uh, the level of detail you can program them with. And the assumptions that you make, mm-hmm. um, how long people spend in the shops, uh, how long people spend, how close they get, all of those things may, mean that those models, attractive though they may be, are really difficult to implement because you can get wildly varying answers depending on the assumptions. So we, we tend to rely very heavily on the simpler population-based models uh, because their outcomes track closer what we're actually seeing in the field. Were these models developed here? Did they come out of the universities or are they from abroad or are they like the models that are being used in other countries? It's very like PCR. These models are standard models. So that SEIR model, susceptible, exposed, infectious, recovered, that's a standard approach to modeling infectious disease that's been around since the 1920s. What we were really lucky to have in this country uh, is a group of applied mathematicians and computer scientists who knew how to implement these models. So they weren't inventing something new. They were taking a known technology and adapting it to our circumstance. So we have uh, James Leeson from the University of Limerick implemented our our homogeneous population SEIR model. Uh, Jim Duggan in um, NUI Galway has developed the age cohort model and Elizabeth Hunter in TU Dublin is working on agent-based models. And just a really important thing to say, one of the key underpinnings of our group is a really top-class group of statisticians, uh, including Brendan Murphy in UCD and Cahill Walsh in Limerick. And that statistical rigor, if I can put it that way, has been really useful in ensuring just as I mentioned Simon Moore earlier, that we've got the right assumptions, the statistical rigor has really tested the models uh, to, to ensure that they're properly calibrated uh, to the Irish population and the behavior of this disease and that their outputs are tested for, for credibility and reliability. It's, it's really an issue where 
you can have access to the tool toolbox, but only a select band know how to use them. And it so happens that we have plenty of people that can do this work here. Yeah, which is actually great to hear. That if the government's yeah. listening, just remember when you're divvying up money for you know, research and such, like mathematics is an important area. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it is no joke that you know you you never know you need an infectious disease modeler until you need one. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I think you're you're absolutely. I remember we met years ago talking about PRTLI and things like that. Yep, we're good old days. We're seeing the benefits about that investment now, in the sense that we have an internationally credible uh, research community to mobilize when we have a crisis like this. And if those investments hadn't been made way back then in the, in the 2000s to build the re- research infrastructure to attract mm-hmm. those researchers and enable them to work here, we'd be in a very different uh, situation now. We, we would be obliged you know, to turn to other countries for this level of expertise, but we do have it here now. And by the way, did the models say, you know, there's a, a third surge coming on here? It's and it's the largest yet. Did it know that this was going to happen, or did the models predict it would be so big? One of the important things about these models is they're essentially scenario models. They, they, what we have to do is um, imagine what, imagine the scenarios of human behavior. How much will people mix? Mm-hmm. Uh, how intimately will they mix? And then make some assumptions about what viral transmission is going to look like over the coming weeks. That really can be tailored to suit a given population, can't it? Because the Irish behave one way, the British might be another, the US another. It can. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, we're learning all the time. Uh, so we assume coming into Christmas that we would see levels of social mixing, which were a little bit higher and a little bit more um, risky. Uh, because they would be indoors than in late summer. And um, what happened was that, in fact, there was much more socialization and much more social mixing, much more intergenerational mixing than we had hoped for. And so, yes, the, the models quite clearly showed that there would be a surge of disease in January if we mixed too much in December. We, I'd say the models that we ran mm-hmm. showed a smaller surge than actually eventuated. And when you think about that, like we were thinking perhaps the disease would grow at 10% per day. Uh, that's a doubling time of, of seven days. Wow. You know, yeah. yeah but, uh, and if you think about that, you'd start at 500. A week later, you'd be at 1,000. You'd go, maybe we're in trouble. A week later, you're mm-hmm. at 2,000 you introduce some measures and then a week later at 4,000 before those measures kick in. In actual fact, what happened was we grew at 15% per day. That means we were doubling every five days. So you know, we were at 4,000 cases a day, about a week, 10 days faster than we thought. So in one sense, the models absolutely clearly showed this was coming. Uh, but in another sense, collectively, we underestimated how much social mixing there would be over Christmas and the models underestimated how quickly uh, that surge would arrive. But it was, it was, that was ultimately yeah. immaterial in the sense that we knew it was coming and therefore... And- we're pre- trying to prepare for it. 
And by the way, um, these variant strains, I don't, I hate to hear these, <laughs> the emergence of these things, but are the variant strains confounding things or do they, are they readily accommodated in the models and in the work done by your specialists? It's, it's straightforward enough actually to, um, to incorporate a variant strain because one of the core parameters in the model is transmissibility, how easily the virus transmits from person to person and you simply vary that parameter. What seems to have happened with the new strain is, unfortunately, uh, it arrived in Ireland. The, I'm talking about the B117, the, the so-called UK variant. Yeah. It arrived in Ireland, and we couldn't have anticipated this, um, just as we opened up in December. So, unfortunately, that social mixing that we all engaged in, understandably, in December, yeah. allowed that variant to, it was multiple introductions, it allowed the variant to transmit quite quickly to become, uh, towards the end of December, uh, the dominant variant um, in the country. And that led, that, that, was, that was a perfect storm in essence, with intense socialization over Christmas, with a new variant that we didn't really understand yet mm-hmm. becoming dominant, led to that very rapid acceleration between, between Christmas and, and New Year with a small impact of the fact that people delayed coming forward over the core Christmas period. If, if people got sick on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, St. Stephen's Day, yeah. they didn't present until the 27th, 28th, 29th of December. Yeah. I must say, thinking about it, you know, you're delivering your predictions and recommendations to government must be onerous given they can literally be about life or death. It must be tough mm. going for you and for your team as you watch the numbers and you'll know before any of us will know what the trend is and you know if if there are going to be more fatalities or illnesses or ICUs um, coming from it. What impact does it have on you? It must affect you in some way. Yeah, I'd have to admit it's it, 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 it weighs heavily. It, it, it is a responsibility. There's an interesting, uh, most of my family are frontline healthcare workers of one kind or another and my daughter was actually working in one of the larger intensive care units during April. Uh, so we kind of compare and contrast. She was on the front line managing patients day by day, and I was locked in a room counting the numbers. And they, they have different types of stresses. Uh, <laughs> what? You know, it's bringing it home. Yeah, because I'm quite disconnected, but can see, you know, there's, there, you know, there were back in April, 140 people in ICU when I went to bed and 170 when I got up. So it, it, they're, they're quite different exposures, if I can put it that way. They're both really quite stressful. The thing that's, the thing that makes that tolerable if i can put it that way in the long haul is it is a fantastic team so the the team of people that i have supporting me that are doing the analyses are are truly an outstanding group of people an outstanding group of, of academics so you can rely on their professionalism to know that you're at least generating the best possible advice you're you're, do, you're doing the best that you can yeah um, and then the wider National Public Health Emergency Team, again, is a team. Uh, and, and it's that, it, it's very, I guess the best way to describe it is that, that everybody that's in any way involved in 
caring for people at any level in this pandemic is subject to their own unique form of stress. Um, and, you know, the two things that keep you going are, one, it's important, and two, your own professionalism and that of the team around you sustains you when things get tough. I must say, I'm happy you guys are in place and happy too the commitment that's made every day, day after day by the frontline staff, mm -hmm. wherever they are. So it's, it's something to think about. But again, with, it's, it's kind of with that in mind. If you see bad news coming, do you tend to hit the middle ground or do you give the most extreme view to, to government? You know, they, they obviously have a different approach to the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, do they see what you would suggest as a middle ground or do you give them the hard, the hard chaw first? It's our job to, to lay out the facts. So both in our private presentations to government and, and also, I think, in our public presentations, mm -hmm. we set out the picture as we see it. A kind of n neither um, sugar-coated on the one hand or inflated or, or, or made more worrying on the other. It's, it's the cold, hard facts. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, and I think it's important to, like, as health professionals, like, we have a professional and ethical obligation and an, an ethical framework that we operate in. Mm -hmm. And so not only is there kind of a professional drive to to be be clear and honest but there's an ethical obligation to to be clear impartial honest uh, in our advice and that's the way we operate and it's it's an opportunity for me one of, one of the things that i I'd, I'd like to emphasize is the really important role of public servants like we're experts or academics of one kind or another um people often dismiss civil servants or public servants these people are public policy professionals. What public servants or civil servants do is they turn evidence into policy, and they're really good at it. And that's been a real um, privilege for me, actually, is to watch really highly trained civil servants. We have a secretariat for our group. Um, every single one of those has a master's degree of one kind or another. And they are top-class people. And that's what they do. They, they they take complicated things like that we work on and turn it into actionable advice to government and support government in making decisions. So just to, to answer your question, we lay out the facts, yeah. we explain the facts, we dissect out complex concepts and our experiences that government listens. And it, it's it's not a question of us finding a middle ground or telling government what they might want to hear. Yeah. We have a professional and ethical obligation to lay out for government. This is how we see it. And and now you need to make a decision. Here's our advice. Yeah. Yeah. Here's an interesting point that was raised by a number of people now starting to talk to me about this, but uh, there's talking about a time when the vaccination level speeds up and we arrive at a point where the number of vaccines given reaches and slowly creeps past the numbers of new cases. Do your models tell us when this might happen? Yeah. Um, so, so already in the models, um, so we've ha we, we've had somewhere between two hundred thousand and four hundred thousand people we'd estimate inoculated by the disease. If I, you know, that they've had the disease mm -hmm. and are, are probably immune, though um, how long that will last and the extent of that is only becoming clear. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, uh, the the way the models are structured, they 
um, and we're including vaccination compartments in them now so that we can treat people who are vaccinated separately from people who are recovered or um, uh, separately from people who are still susceptible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the models do take that into account. And we're already beginning to see the impact upon of people who are um, recovered, if I can put it that way, and, and assumed immune to the disease. Um, and as as soon as we see a level of protection from the vaccine, so there's a delay, as you know, between yeah. um, receiving your dose, uh, your second dose, and, and being becoming highly protected. Um, uh, the important thing to realize is there'll be a period of time now the first impact on the vaccine will be to protect the vulnerable from from severe disease as you know we don't yet know um the extent to which the vaccine will reduce the possibility of you acquiring a mild infection and transmitting it to somebody else and we're currently using a range of assumptions from the very optimistic to the very conservative uh about how likely it is so so to make it simple, um, if the effect of the vaccine is that I continue to be susceptible, if I catch the virus, I get a very mild illness. I might even mightn't even know I have it, mm-hmm. but there's some chance that I'll transmit it to other people. Then it's going to take quite a long time uh, for us to bring the disease under control uh, through vaccination. Mm-hmm. If, on the other hand, Uh, The vaccine largely prevents people picking up any substantial viral infection at all, and therefore they don't transmit. Um, Then we will will begin to see an effective vaccination on the behavior of the whole population in a couple of months. So as yet, um, until we see the vaccine deployed in large populations and understand its effect on transmissibility, it's it's impossible to, to know with any certainty how mm-hmm. vaccine is going to affect population level transmission. We, we frankly, yeah. we're optimistic because vaccines normally uh, have a significant impact on transmission. So, so we're optimistic, but uh, it's too early to give a any kind of a useful answer beyond that range of um, uh, months to to longer. Mm-hmm. And then just a final thing, we're going to enter a vulnerable period, frankly, um, uh, when the vulnerable have some protection. So we see, and this is great news, far fewer deaths, Mm -hmm. far fewer hospitalizations, particularly among older and vulnerable people, that we may relax too much and the virus could spread very rapidly through younger people. And even though severe disease is a rarer event amongst younger people, it's not very rare. So if you have very large numbers of infections in younger people, uh, we could see, again, a huge burden on our healthcare system and a significant mortality. So we've got a vulnerable period between the time that the older adults are vaccinated and we start to achieve significant impacts on transmission uh, as we approach uh, vaccine-induced herd immunity. Okay. Um, do you think it might be a bit of a morale boost, maybe, if we started to include a, a daily figure for the total number of vaccines delivered? It's nice to see the number going up, and, you know, it, it would yeah. be a bit of a boost if we say, okay, we can see something's happening, there's the number. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, you can see that the, that the HSE and the minister uh, do keep us informed uh, a few times a week at the moment about the number of vaccine doses that are administered. I'm interested in the number of people protected, which is going to take a little bit longer for that to yeah. occur. But one of the useful things, that we, because I, I, I take the point, um, some colleagues in psychology have put it very, people need a goal. Um, we, we need to know we're going to get out of this, and we are. Um, we're looking forward to being able to model um, with a bit more certainty um, uh, where we're going with the disease as vaccination offers protection. So I think, as you say, I think over the coming months, it's going to be very positive if we can say, here's what our models show if we didn't have vaccination. But now that we do, we're going to reach our goal of being able to open up more, get out and about more uh, sooner than if we mm-hmm. have the vaccine. So I think I think if, if, if vaccination can bring our goals closer, the more we can describe that to the public. And, you know, unfortunately, in your question a few moments ago, I couldn't give you certainty uh, on when vaccination is going to allow us to do some of the things that we currently can't do as we can feed that information to the public and tell them with some confidence the impact on vaccination that is going to make the current restrictions easier to cope with it because we can see a goal in sight. Listen, Philip, that's it um, for now. Thanks very much for giving us the time and coming in and talking to us about these things. I know you're extremely busy. Thanks again to Professor Philip Nolan. Thanks, Dick. Pleasure talking to you. Now we move on to an important part of the podcasts, the questions. These are questions that we receive from real people with real issues and concerns who want information. And we try to supply it by having experts available to answer their questions. This week, I put your questions to Dr. Gerald Berry. Gerald is a virologist at the UCD School of Veterinary Medicine, and he'll tell us a bit about what he does. Hi, yeah, I'm I'm based in UCD. I'm a virologist. Um, I trained in Scotland, so I did my PhD in Edinburgh University. I then did research in Glasgow University before coming back to Dublin in 2015. Um, my lab studies a whole host of different viruses. Uh, we're very interested in mosquito-borne viruses, things that uh, cause disease both in humans and in animals. And my research is focused on understanding how viruses interact with our immune system. So once a virus goes into the body, um, what does it do to cause disease, basically? It it sets up a war with the immune response. And in some people, your immune response will win. And in other people, your immune response won't win and the virus is able to cause disease. And we want to understand the dynamics of that. And so in the case of COVID-19, we're studying how the virus is interacting with the body's immune system and trying to get a handle on why some people are able to fight off the virus very easily and other people uh, obviously succumb, unfortunately, to the virus and, and get either very severe disease or unfortunately die from it. And we don't really have a handle on exactly what's happening there. So we're trying to understand some of those dynamics. We're also looking at how the virus survives outside of the body. So there are lots of different parameters such as temperature, and humidity that can impact on the virus's ability to persist in the environment. Um, And we're studying different aspects of that and its ability to survive on different surfaces. So we have fantastic facilities in UCD, and we have a fantastic team that are working on that uh, together, working to um, come up with solutions and answers that will hopefully help us fight off this thing. 
The first question comes from Emer, and she asks if you have the vaccine and are now protected from COVID-19, um, which should allow you to mix safely, is there a chance that you could catch COVID anyway and then transmit it? Um, I suppose this is a, a question we're all trying to answer um, at the moment. It's a really important question. And I suppose the, the quick answer is we don't know. Um, we know that based on the trials that have, have been carried out, that the vaccines are really effective, particularly the, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, um, but also the AstraZeneca to a certain extent, are really good at um, preventing severe disease. But the question we don't have the answer to yet is whether you can still get infected, even mildly infected, and transmitted to other people. Um, and the, the preliminary data coming out of some work that's been done by AstraZeneca suggests that their vaccine does have limited impact on the ability to transmit it to other people. So if you're vaccinated, um, your, your, your potential for being infected and transmitting it to other people is reduced. Mm -hmm. um, but they haven't given kind of firm data on that yet. So it's still a little bit up in the air. I suppose the, the most solid data we have is based on what's happening in Israel at the moment, where they're vaccinating to a huge extent. They've almost 30% of their population vaccinated now, and they're tracking people really carefully. And they're finding that people that have had two shots of the vaccine um, seem to have a, a dramatically reduced um, ability to get infected again. So of the people that have had the two shots, less than 0.01% of them have become infected subsequently. Now, we're only looking at a, sh a few short weeks after that second shot. So the data is still very preliminary, but it is, it is quite promising. Mm -hmm. uh, just as a, as a comparison, I suppose you'd say, what happens with, the, with things like the cold or um, other viral-based infections? Do, they, um, do you clear that and have antibodies, but then still can spread the, the bug? Yeah, I suppose the, the the best example maybe we could look at is the flu shot um, that everyone gets, or not everyone, but a large um, percentage of the population get each year. Um, and I suppose the first thing to say is the immunity that you get when you get infected um, is sometimes slightly different from when you um, actually get the vaccine. A lot of the time, uh, the vaccine gives you better immunity um, than mm -hmm. the infection itself. And, and that's also seems to be the case with the, with the COVID vaccines, that you get a, a better antibody response with the vaccine. But when we look at the, the flu vaccine, actually, it seems to change from year to year. Some, some of the flu vaccines um, give really good protection and give what's called neutralizing um, protection. So you don't get infected once you've had the vaccine. But other years, the protection doesn't seem to be quite as good and people can still become infected, but they don't get sick from it. So the potential really, or the, the concern is that if we, if we look at the COVID vaccine, while it may protect you from getting disease, there's a possibility that you, it may allow a, a small amount of replication in your nasal passage, for example. And if that smaller amount of replication is happening, while you won't get disease, you may still be able to spit out uh, some virus from your nose or from your mouth. So yeah. that's really a question that's still not answered. And I think the important thing would be to say that when you do get vaccinated, whenever that hopefully happens, I think until we know for definite that you can't transmit it, we all need to act still, unfortunately, like we could potentially um, transmit it to other people. So we still, even when vaccinated, still need to be a little bit cautious until the data becomes a bit firmer and we have better evidence. Very good. Thanks for that. Now, the second question comes from Brian in Dublin. He asks, how many years protection do you get out of the vaccine? 
another really interesting question that we're trying to get an answer to. Unfortunately, of course, the vaccines have only just recently come out, so we don't know for sure. And there isn't a kind of a magic number that we can look at and say, you know, if we get a certain antibody response, we know that that will last for X amount of years or anything like that. So we, we really don't know how long the protection is going to last for. What we do know is that you get really good antibody responses, um, you get um, good memory from the vaccines. And so we know, based on infections at least, that antibodies and and protection and memory from things like B cells lasts at least eight months. So one would assume that the vaccine will give it at least that protection and probably much longer. Mm -hmm. There's a caveat with that, though, unfortunately. And we think about the flu and, and the flu shot that people get on an annual basis. And potentially the same sort of scenario might be envisaged for the COVID-19 vaccine. And the reason for that is not because the protection wanes or or decreases it's because new variants emerge and if yeah. new versions of the virus are emerging even if you have protection from the vaccine you got last year that protection may not be good enough to protect you against the new variant that might come up a year from now or, or two years from now so you know you might we might need to get into a cycle of annual vaccines for example um, to protect us against new versions or new variants, just like we do with the flu. Yep. Okay, very good. Now, the third question, Don from Dublin asks whether people with compromised immune systems can be vaccinated. And Teresa from Donegal asks if there is information on how the, those with autoimmune disease are reacting to the vaccine. Okay, so this is a really important question, obviously, and uh, it, it, very important to kind of look at all the different groups of people that have um, slightly different immune responses, let's say, than the average person. Autoimmune diseases, people are, are likely to be on immunosuppressive treatments, and so the immune response is going to be slightly dampened, which means that potentially, um, if you get the vaccine, one might have a concern that um, the vaccine could cause some sort of damage or, or, or infection. Now, what's important to say about these vaccines that are currently rolling out, um, both the AstraZeneca, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, they're all based on something that can't cause infection. Even if you had no immune system, these would not cause infection to the point that, that it would cause disease. And what we mean by that is that the vaccines are attenuated um, in, the, in the case of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, or actually just pieces or bits of the virus in the case of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. So they will trigger an immune response, um, but they can't cause disease. So if we just look at the, the Pfizer and the, Astra, the Moderna vaccines um, as an example, what the, what the scientists have done is they've effectively ripped apart the virus, taken out its genetic material, and then chopped up that genetic material and isolated just one little part of it. And that's what goes into you when you get vaccinated with the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. So that little part of, of the genetic material of the virus is only able to make one protein from the virus, and that's the spike protein. And now that's a really important protein because that's effectively what your immune system recognizes when the real thing comes along, or it's it's the major part of what your immune system recognizes at least. And so that little piece of genetic material, that'll go into your um, cells. It will start to produce or tell your cells to produce uh, spike protein. 
And that protein will be recognized by the immune system. So we're kind of training the immune system to, to mm. recognize that so that when it sees it in the real thing, it can act very quickly. Um, and But the important thing is that little piece of genetic material um, it can't cause any disease. So even if you are on immunosuppressive treatments or you have a weakened immune system, um, there's no possibility that that can cause any harm to you. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the AstraZeneca, they're using a, a, a modified virus that has been weakened such that, again, it can't cause disease. Um, and that, again, produces a protein, the spike protein. And again, it's training the immune system to recognize that spike protein. So in both cases, um, we're using uh, things that are not capable of causing disease. So even if your immune system is suppressed, um, you won't get sick from it. The only the other thing I would say, though, is that if you are on some sort of treatment that's impacting on your immune system, there is potential that the vaccine won't have quite as good an efficacy um, in you as someone that has a very strong immune response. So I think it's important to keep that in mind and discuss this very um, cautiously, I suppose, with your with your GP and, and consultant, if you're working with a consultant, to make sure that you're um, getting the best vaccine possible and also continuing to be cautious while vaccine levels are low and while virus is still circulating in the population until such time as we get to a point where um, we have uh, hopefully achieved herd immunity through vaccination. Yeah, bring it on. We're all waiting for that time to come. Listen, uh, Gerald, that's very good stuff. Thanks for that. Um, It's great to have someone who knows what they're talking about providing responses to these questions. It's very important. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And thanks also to our partners in the Health Research Board, without whom this show would not be possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to hit subscribe. And if you want to recommend the show to others, just tell them to search Vaccine Questions wherever they get their podcasts. And if you have a question you'd like me to ask our experts next time, we'd love to hear from you. Just send your question along with your name and location to vaccinequestions at ria.ie. Take care and talk to you next time.